Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello everyone, I'm Sam Fry and this is a brand new episode of Technique, the podcast where we talk to artists about their use of technology. But before we start, let's hear that theme tune. Now this episode is actually presented by Richard Adams, so it would only be polite to let him introduce who he's interviewing. I'm Richard Adams, and in this podcast I'll be discussing audio, the future of audio, the past of audio and the present of audio, with Paul Weir, the noted computer games audio director. Richard and Paul have known each other for a while, so this interview turned out really good. They start by talking a little bit about audio design in video games, which, as you'll hear, is a lot more than just making music. And then they go on to talk about the retail industry and where audio can make a difference. And finally, they go and turn their attention to the cultural industries, talking a little bit about theatre. So a bit of music and then over to Richard for his interview. Describe myself as an audio director, composer, sound designer. Um, basically, I'll do uh, anything that involves making sounds in any form. And if you're going to pay me, even better. Um, like um, probably more than half my work is in video games. Um, so my two main clients at the moment: uh, one is Hello Games, who made uh, a game called No Man's Sky, which was released uh, last year, but we're still developing. Um, and I was the audio director, sound designer, did a little bit of music on that. Um, I'm also an audio director for Microsoft's uh, Lyft Studio, which is a London-based studio, uh, which primarily does HoloLens work and uh, you paint 3D. Um, so that's more of a traditional kind of audio post-production environment. Um, and today was a good example. Like I was um, helping to engineer uh, a voice recording session. We had about uh, eight actors in for a virtual reality drama. So um, that required kind of fairly broad range of skills to do that. Um, uh, but also I work a lot for a company called The Sound Agency led by Julian Treasure, uh, where we do like commercial retail sound installations. So typically shopping centres, airports, we've just done a cruise liner. And part of the work, uh, the section that I don't do, will be to define what their audio branding is and what what, what their brand is in terms of sound, um, to look at the acoustics of the space. And then the element I get in is like the creative production side, which is creating new sound and new soundscapes um, to fill the space with something which hopefully uh, on brand and is more pleasant than we have um, and, and just creates a... Uh, so so, so a let me veer off the question list straight yeah, away sure. because you've raised some really interesting things there. I was going to ask you to talk a little bit about the difference between audio and music. And I guess as we talk... That will become clear, and and uh, you know that is a very important distinction because if if I say you produce audio for video games, a lot of people automatically assume that means music, and it, it clearly doesn't on a large to a large extent. But let's 
wheel back to the stuff you do with the sound agency. You talk there about audio branding. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about what audio yeah. branding seems to be and then what is involved in you know the creative production that you talk about? Sure. Well, traditional audio branding would be idents. Um, you know, whatever you hear at the end of a radio ad or TV ad, um, and that's normally what people would associate. Now, we do a bit of that, um, but primarily our focus is to try and get brands to think about what what would personify them in terms of sound and music, primarily music, actually. Um, so, you know, is it a warm sound? Is it an acoustic sound? Is it electronic? Whatever, just trying to kind of bring them down so we can actually have almost like a playlist and go, this this feels suitable for where your brand is, and this isn't suitable. Um, and that's helpful. A lot, a, lot, a lot of brands haven't considered what their audio um, um, like identity would be. Well, Whereas, let's, let's list a few places that you could hear audio identity. I mean, obviously there are jingles and radio yeah. ads and so on. Where else would you hear an audio identity? Well, well, uh, well, we would say you would hear uh, you ought to have an audio identity everywhere. So that let's say you're a clothes shop. Um, now, a lot of clothes shops, they well, let's say top shop. So they've got their own in-house radio station. Right. So obviously the music on their playlist is chosen because it's appropriate to their, to their brand. Now, obviously, we generally we wouldn't deal with those kind of people, but sometimes we do create playlists. Um, some places, many places, many shops. Uh, there's no one in charge of that, so it's whatever CD, CD, whatever, you know, audio streaming tracks they, the, the manager of a shop decides to play at that time. So it may have no relationship at all to what the brand represents, and maybe contrary. A really good example of that is, uh, let's say you've got a clothes shop, which is caters to a slightly older market, say 30 to 40 year olds, but they're playing like club music, really loud club music. And that's, you know, that's, physically unpleasant um, it's kind of uh, like psychoacoustically unpleasant and it also puts you off because you feel this is not really what, what, what do you mean psychoacoustically unpleasant so what i mean by psychoacoustically unpleasant is that if a sound is too loud and um, you know you automatically go into this fight or flight uh, situation like loud sound in a cinema is uh, used as a dramatic device in the same way that very low frequencies uh, are threatening uh, because it reminds us of, say, an earthquake uh, or something large uh, and dangerous. Uh, there have been experiments, as I recall, where governments have tried subsonic sound uh, as a weapon. Is that, that that's true, isn't it? Uh, subsonic, yeah. I mean, uh, very low sounds to insect. Very low sound, yeah. um, but hypersonic uh, speakers, which is uh, directional sound. I mean, sound is energy, so, so it can be used as a weapon. This hypersonics originated, uh, I think, during the Second World War where they tried using loud sound, basically, literally as a weapon, um, with a slight um, bug in the system in that it affected the people using the weapon as much as people you were trying to attack. <laughs> well, they were um, probably close to it. Yes, <laughs> so, so it wasn't ideal. Um, but it's now uh, used widely on things like cruise liners. Um, it was a few years ago now where that was a cruise liner that was attacked by Somalian uh, pirates, uh, and they were... They were uh, fought off by using uh, a hypersonic speaker, which is a directional sound. So, so hang on, directional the, sound, that means yeah. sound so you can put, do like a spotlight, a yeah, very focused exactly beam that. of sound. Yeah, so, so it, it, um, 
uh, it's all heavily patented. So, like, Hypersonic is a brand name. Uh-huh. Um, so there are equivalents now, but you can't call them Hypersonic. Um, but it is exactly that. It basically modulates the sound to much higher frequency. So, so the higher frequency it is, the more directional it is, the less broad it is. And then it demodulates, demodulates, converts back to audible frequencies when it hits a surface. Um, so it's not very good for like high quality uh, reproduction. Like it's not very good for music. Um, it's not bad for speech. Um, so we've used a hypersonic speaker sometimes in a bank when maybe you want to make announcements in a very specific space, but you don't want everyone to hear it because it's irritating. Or maybe you've got a little installation. I think we once did like a tree. So you've got little bird song and things like that. Just to so make you, could, you could point the announcement in the bank at the person yeah. and only the person standing there can hear it. Yeah, pretty well. It's, I mean, it's I mean, not, there's going to be some leakage, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, 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 they have many uses in, in industrial spaces for things like um, museums, use them as well. Uh, so and they're, they're really useful device to use Um I don't know how we got into hypersonics. Well, it's just really interesting. But, I mean, go further and talk a little bit about, I know you've done a lot of work at uh, airports and in supermarkets about getting people to buy more with targeted sound. Uh, and I don't mean physically targeted sound, but mm. sound that is targeted to uh, users in particular areas of spaces to get them to engage more or relax or, or whatever. Yeah, that's, uh, so that, that's the bottom line is, you know, one half of it is making sound that's, suitable for the space um so if you've got a large space you don't want um sounds that very fast or percussive because of the, the reverb in the space it becomes a mess um but you know the bottom line it is we are trying to make people feel happier and often that's through making them feel more relaxed calming them down um so a lot of it does tend to be quite kind of ambient and gentle um and you know in, in the bad old days like in the 70s um there was the incorrect uh, assumption that if you played fast music, particularly in restaurants, that uh, and this was the music, the original music idea, that people would eat quickly and therefore you get higher throughput and therefore you make more money. Uh, but it's the exact opposite is true, where if you play slower music and you slow people down, yes, your your throughput reduces, but because people are enjoying the experience more, they'll buy more high value items like they'll desserts. buy more wine or desserts yeah. or, or whatever. And they'll come back because it was a pleasant experience. So uh, we simply work on the basis, and we have some research I can talk about, but work on the basis that if, if you're more calm, like an airport's a really good example, horrible environment, very stressful, um, and yet you've got a lot of time to waste. So if we can make you feel a bit more, you know, a bit more calmer, um, a bit happier to, to, to stick around a particular area, then, then you're going to do that. Um, and all the metrics point to that quite clearly if you st- the longer you stay in an area then the more likely you you are going to, to to buy things well you get bored and go to the shop yeah I, I feel, or you start to wander around and relax and just take things in and gradually pick things off the shelf i guess yeah and um we have i'm looking it up now i mean we did some very very early research which was not you know this is not scientific at all but um i think the first one we did almost 10 years ago was with Glasgow Airport. Um, yeah. And we, we, they told us how much on an average month the shops would make as a whole. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm correct in saying they just had commercial music playing at that point. Then we got in 
and uh, we played our music for one day on, then no music for one day off. And we did that for two months, so we could alternate through all the days. So, so it wasn't that we ch- chose picking certain days. And overall, like this is why I'm take this with a pinch of salt. Um, but overall, the retail increased by ten uh, percent with kind of the ambient music. Now we have done more, I'd say, more thorough research uh, since then, and generally we see a bump between like two and three percent. So it's still that's still really worthwhile good. though over a period oh, of time. That's a big amount of money. Yeah, for for what is actually a tiny investment. Yeah, uh, and even if you don't see a bump, um, so some of the research we've done has been uh, just on how uh, people's impressions and how positive they feel towards the experience. So e- even if you don't get a bump in retail. And every time we've done some research, it's always pointed that people are happier, people are more satisfied, people prefer uh, sound that is uh, more suitable for space, even if they're not aware of it. And that's that's kind of the important part to that. So have you built, uh, have you ever worked on a piece where people, it has been deliberately a conscious creative decision to make people almost unaware of it? Well, well that's pretty well everything we do. We we. Yeah. Try not to be uh, to be obtuse. Uh, no, but there's they've been unobtrusive, and there's yeah. but you can still hear the tunes tinkling away. Whereas I just wondered if you got managed to sort of get that sweet spot where the customer almost doesn't know the music is there. Yeah, well, we do try to mix it at a level where it's just sitting above the background noise, mm. um, which but also it depends on the environment. Sometimes we, we are literally just providing a background soundscape. And sometimes we're masking. So we're trying to uh, obscure unpleasant background sounds, which we can't control. So we have to a few office spaces. So there we might be a bit louder than we'd normally be. Um, but that is to, as a mask background sound, and mask maybe a conversation that people are having you know, a little distance away. And that is much harder to get right. You know, it's really quite tricky, that. Um, we don't have, we have played, well, our system at the moment is not interactive, but we do have automated volume control. And we uh, do obviously mix in the space with people around because you absolutely have to do that. And we do also playlist. So the soundscape we choose may be different at different parts of the day, depending on occupancy. OK, wheel back a little bit. One of the things you mentioned, an almost throwaway comment, was that you know, oh, a lot of this sound tends to be quite sort of ambient and and sort of, I think you said tinkly, but maybe you didn't. Um, you said. <laughs> I probably put in words in your mouth there. Um, but, but think a little bit sort of more artistically about the aesthetics of what you produce and that sound. Is Does it lean towards the, the, the sort of Brian Eno ambient end in general? Yeah, we definitely sit on most of our work um, sits on kind of the Eno side. And it's a fine line. Like we, we, we absolutely don't want to sound like a spa. Like, like we don't want to be new age. We really yeah. don't. Um, but quite often we sound on a very specific space. For example, it's very common to do like the children's area. And it might be a play area, it might be a children's shop area, it might be whatever, it's that park shop. And then it'd be more obvious. It might be more playful sound. Um, so it might be much more about creating a specific kind of atmosphere. Uh, one we did a few years ago was for Howard's, um, uh, where we sound designed the children's department, which is made up of multiple rooms. 
Uh, and so ev- every space was sounded different. So I had like a space area and that was a combination of background sounds and, and like individual events. We had like a, a forest space where we had uh, fairies who would speak to you in like little plant pots on the floor. Um, so we had uh, so literally like a, like a background wash and then spot effects, which were very noticeable and part of the experience. Um, so it does entirely depend on the space. And, you know, that's the service we offer, which is something completely custom to the environment. Another thing you've worked on quite a lot over the years, and another friend of mine um, has been working on things like similarly in film over the years. But this is something called generative sound, mm-hmm. and I know you know we're living in now an algorithm culture, so you know the word algorithm is thrown around and this, that, and the other. But we both know that generative algorithmic sound has been around for a couple of decades at least uh, in a usable form. But could you talk a little bit about what? generative sound is and the sorts of things you've been doing with it because i think generative sound is really interesting as it's to me it has key features and you can tell me i'm wrong in this but um in that it is literally never ending if you don't stop it it is non-repeating and it is generated from a rules engine as i understand it yes so i'm not particularly purist on how to define generative sound um uh, but essentially, as you say, it's uh, it's a rule-based method of creating sound design, music, really doesn't matter, it can apply to everything. Um, so the, essentially you've got a randomised system with a bit of control logic um, to define what plays, when, how often. Um, but because of that, uh, you don't get into a situation of an obvious loop point. Um, so it's a continual change. Part of the difficulty in that is what it does always change, actually making it sound like it really is changing is, is, is a different kind of challenge. It's more of a creative challenge. Um, but pretty well all the soundscapes we uh, implement uh, on the retail side uh, are generative. So it has our own uh, custom system, which we call the Amplifier, which is some code we've, we've written. And it sits on a Linux rack. Um, that's also networked so that we can remotely uh, change the soundscapes and apply new ones. But I also do that work quite often in, in games, like No Man's Sky, uh, pretty well the music is run through its own music system that we built. Um, and that is fully interactive. So it Yeah, that got, at, that got quite a lot of coverage in the press, didn't it, with the band? Yeah. There was a band associated with okay. it. Uh, so about 65 Days of Static yeah. uh, wrote most of the music to that. So, uh, and, and they collaborated very much on working with, with our alternative system. Um, but it was an obvious game to do it. Uh, because the game itself is a kind of space exploration adventure game. Um, it's procedurally driven, which is a hell we, we can get into that as well, as opposed to generative. Yeah, generative created. <laughs> uh, but basically it's mathematically created. The universe is mathematically created. 
Um, so it is literally kind of, well, it's not infinite, but it's very extensive. Um, and obviously, like, we couldn't write music to fill that, so we took this approach of creating a rule-based system for music and then also making it react uh, to how you played the game. So depending on uh, where you're walking, what you, what, how you've been doing, what you were facing, perhaps, um, you know, what activity you've been up to in the recent past. So this all feeds into our system and it adapts to music. Never creates anything new. So that's... I so think, that, well, hang on. How did you get yeah. a live band to feed into that? Uh, well, can you tell us, first of all, I've got to ask? Yeah. Or is it... Paid? Yeah, well... <laughs> No, 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 not at all. Uh, I mean, 65 as a band are very technical. Um, our approach with them was because of the, the founder of Hello Games is a fan of their music. And from the start, we were kind of very clear we didn't want to affect their creative process. Like, we just said to them, make an album as you would any other time, uh, but, and we will use that album for the game. But once you've done that, we will then rip it all apart and create new music specifically for our music system. Uh, and, and actually it worked very well. So we ended up with, with the album tracks, which we use in various forms in the game. But rather than just kind of deconstructing them, um, because we knew we were going to have, then have this generative process. So all along they were keeping the bits and, and, and like, you know, keeping all the scrap, scraps at the side and keeping all their sessions in, in a form where we could go back in. And so rather than just saying, here's the drum loop we used on, on, on track on the album, it's like, okay, we can open all that up. Let's create more drum tracks of the same type and more bass riffs. So we just really created this kind of whole plethora of material, um, which sounds like the album is not quite the same as the album. Uh, and then kind of shoved that into the game. Massive advantages. We even now have complete control over the mix of music, over what music does. And then to add more music is really super simple. We just create new soundscapes. Um, the game automatically picks it up and applies the same rules. Um, so it, it, it actually worked out rather well for us. Um, and we well, didn't I think, think you've got a hell of a lot of coverage, and I, I, I'm not sure, but I may be wrong on this, but I thought, I thought you'd at least been nominated for awards for it. No, no, we never no? get them. No, no, so, criminal. Get rid of the awards. No, no, that did. A hell of a lot of press no, coverage, no. though, and in particular I saw a few interviews with you and the band were promoting it, and and it did sound quite different when you actually were in there. Um, yeah, I think like like you know I'm trying to avoid you know having a soundtrack that becomes you know, irritating, basically annoying over time. It's the same problem as retail soundscapes. Well, for me that 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 felt like one of the first highly visible attempts to move live real music, if you like, mm. into a fully like you say, procedural system where, you know, taking it away from, you know, it, it still has the humanity at the heart of it because humans created it and it's inspired by people. But then the computer is taking and taking it and applying the algorithms and doing other things to that. So yeah, it feels like more think, like a joint venture in a sense. Yeah, We're the inspiration yeah. and then the, the sort of remixing is being done dynamically. I, I think that's a very good way of describing it, that, that I'm very much into humans creating the art. Um, uh, you know, there's a whole it's like an augmented reality, actually, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you can go alg algorithmic, absolutely, and people do. Um, you know, they've created very impressive results. Um, that's just not, you know, where I'm coming from. No. Um, and also, I 
tend to feel, and you can disagree with me, but I tend to feel like um, the closer you get to, if you like, uh, believable algorithmic music, the more restrictive a system becomes. So you can create you know, a jazz piece that could convince you it's been created by humans, but that's all that system does, right? Mm-hmm. So you're now locked into that, and you have, now have to write a whole new set of algorithms to do something different. Whereas, like, for me, that's overcomplicating it, right? Humans can, can write good music, right? Why are we not letting them do that? Well, I, I, I think the same as you know. I'm from a visual arts, computer arts background, and I often see a lot of digital art, if you like, that's out there that are things like um, data visualizations. Mm. And they're rather beautiful. Yes. But for me, they lack humanity because they're actually just pretty. Yes, and I think. Do you, do you understand what I mean? That there seems to be no humanity in it, it's just moving lights. So uh, it's like what got me into composing two things. Uh, Penguin Cafe Orchestra uh, and Shostakovich. Penguin Cafe Orchestra. Um, only because what I love about their music, I've just released the album in their new iteration. But anyway, what I love about their music is um, like late 70s and 80s was that in their recordings, they're noisy. Like, and their strings slightly out of tune. And you get a real sense of people coming together to create some interesting, quirky, fun music. But you get, it's very, very humane. It's like, it, it, it's so unpolished in a delightful way. And, uh, you know, by allowing for mistakes and, it, and embracing mistakes and noise and all the things that gives texture, uh, that's, I say, that's what gives it its life uh, and its artistry. Um, and again, I, you know, I, as you said, there's some beautiful uh, procedural art, um, which is incredibly impressive. Um, uh, and you can accept it in its own form. There's interesting No Man's Sky, we kind of, well, I would say about that game is, I think we're one of the first games to really try and get that balance between human creation and computer generation. As I say, I think it's augmented reality, actually, but it's never talked about like that. Mm. Um, AR is, you know, tends to be restricted to things that are visual, um, which is where I want to sort of lead next for Nalino, but, uh, because I know, and I'd like to carry on this conversation, because I know you've worked with VR. Uh, certainly when we first met, you were doing some very early VR audio sound with students. Uh, but now, obviously, you're, you're getting your hands on AR with things like HoloLens, and you're now creating audio, and you're audio directing literal visual augmented reality experiences. The, the No Man's Sky thing for me is an augmented reality piece of music, but this is the whole thing, the sound and the vision. And could you talk a little bit about that and an approach to that? Yeah, even not much. Even if you can't talk about specific projects. Um, uh, uh, well, just in general. Yeah, I mean, the HoloLens side, actually, the kind of work I do is uh, pretty traditional. Um, well, I can't talk specifics, but. Um, it is actually pretty traditional sound design using um, uh, traditional tools. Um, so very much kind of supplementing uh, things like user interfaces and, and those kind of elements. So rather sounds than, or um, yeah. and things yeah. like that, yeah. So, but, it, but, it's, but it's useful, even more useful in a situation where you don't have a controller. So, yes, you've got gestures, but you need to give feedback on the gestures. Um, so it, it, it's really valuable for that. Um, I think the you know, virtual reality, whether it's going to stick around or not, um, 
you know, kind of work we've been doing in like uh, virtual reality drama, I think that that raises some interesting questions. And audio is super important in, in that kind of space because it really sells the idea. Um, and when you're, you know, we're still not at a point where we can uh, create believable humans without video, um, but having at least uh, a believable voice, having actors performing. Yeah even if what we see is not authentic, really sells the idea. So you're, you're, yeah, so you're giving people enough cues to sort of recognise it as something human, Um, which is the age-old thing of making, you know, radio plays sound a particular way. I know know one of the criticisms I've heard of radio drama, for instance, is it's often slightly overplayed. Um, And I, you know, it took me a while to realise that actually that's because it doesn't work if it's underplayed like a film. Um, because you no, haven't because got the vision to go with it, so you need no, to use. You, you've got no gestures yeah, in radio yeah. drama. Um, so, uh, and you know, because we've worked together with a guy called Dirk Mags, um, who's a, a well-known radio producer, um, kind of involved in Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy and things like that. Uh, and his style is kind of slightly to bridge for two a little bit, that he's very physical in the studio. Um, so rather than just standing people for the mic, you know, we'll move a lot. Uh, we'll often play back like sound effects live in the studio. Uh, you know, just get a real sense of presence and depth, uh, and often block it out in with maybe with, with a piece of theatre. And so there's definitely a halfway house that actually is very effective. But you're right. And video games have this kind of weird hybrid in that actually they're often performed as radio dramas, uh, but that doesn't always work because you have got the visuals. Um, and so sometimes it, quite often, uh, it seems over exaggerated. And yet it's hard to get that, 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 that balance right. Oh, it's really I, hard. I mean, I mean, what are your favourite sort of games that you've worked on? What do you think's worked best? I remember you worked on Thief, for instance, some years ago that was, you know, you had to use the audio to navigate the game successfully. Well, Thief I resigned from. Was, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a example. Well, we entered that then. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, Although when I was involved, actually, yeah, we, we spent a lot of time casting um, uh, and doing some really kind of, I thought, I thought interesting like uh, performance work. What do you, well, what do you think? Move away from Thief then a little bit. What do you think of the problems with video game audio that you hear, without mentioning specific other games, because we're not in a slanging match? No, no, no. Actually, I think um, you know, in the past five years. The quality is just is just tremendous. I mean, you know, it's rare to get a poor sounding game now. Mm. Uh, I mean, really super. I think, you know, if if you were to address an issue, it would be it's quite traditional um, that you would think it's bit it would be a bit more experimental. And certainly the titles uh, like you know Inside, a fairly recent game, you know, which has really phenomenal sound design, um, but you think it'd be technically a little bit more adventurous and sometimes it is um, mm. given the environment but it's difficult because creating new audio technology is you know an absolute minefield it's expensive time consuming you no guarantee it's going to work um, and you know if making a game costing a lot of money uh, that's a big risk um, but uh, I suppose the biggest risk is uh, finding the right audio and music people yeah, finding my audio. <laughs> I mean, talk a little bit about that actually, because obviously a lot of uh, people who read the Create Hub site and listen to this podcast are in smaller creative agencies, and I know audio is often viewed as a luxury, um, 
with that. But there are occasions, obviously, where they're going to do audio, because most of our listeners, most of our readers are digital in some way. Um, I mean, one of the things you would look for in hiring an audio or music person? Well, it obviously depends on the field. Um, but, uh, like, there's like two or three elements that are like the basics. Um, one is obviously depth of knowledge. Uh, and, you know, experience is important, but actually not, I wouldn't say it's the number one. Um, it, it's kind of enthusiasm is super important. Uh, willingness to learn, um, your capability, um, you know, and experience, you know, you, you can introduce someone to experience, they, they will gain that. Um, and a sense of vision as well. Um, I think we've, uh, it's interesting, and I might be completely wrong in this, but it feels to me that there's actually not that many experienced audio directors, certainly in this country, um, knocking around. It's just, you know, to have gone through it for 20 years um, and be comfortable still being a sound designer, you know, creating content, but also willing to kind of take the overview. Um, I mean, definitely there are people around, without doubt, but, but not loads. I mean, you think it's, a, in a way, a small enough industry that you still have to be the craftsman and producer? Well, no, well, people tend to, I mean, what you don't say about town, like anything, you tend to, to kind of levitate towards the management side. Mm. Um, and you, so you tend to be an audio manager, uh, so just managing the teams, and rather than having hands-on creative you know, input. Um, and that's quite hard to maintain. It's one of the things I've always been adamant that, yeah, I could earn more money um, running big teams. I don't want to do that. I want to keep making stuff. Mm. Um, uh, and I guess, like, my strength, if I'm able to say that, of is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a programmer. And uh, although I get accused of being a programmer by other programmers, um, but I do have a good technical knowledge, so uh, I enjoy and often will create new technology for projects I work on and seem to have a good relationship with programmers because uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm good to, at defining what problems are and what potential solutions are without, without creating some like crazy thing that no one's ever, ever going to do. Um, and audio can be really rewarding um, for, for a programmer because it's the kind of thing where actually a few small steps can make a big difference. Um, and a lot of game programmers, you kind of graft away for a long time before you see the rewards of what you do. That's slightly off a medium track. But. Uh, okay, so um, roundup. Let's spend a few minutes thinking about the future. We're moving into an era of algorithms, computation, augmented reality, VR, whatever. All the technologies that everybody sees on in the magazines, etc. Where do you think audio and digital music, I suppose, is going in the short term and medium term. I mean, it's pointless trying to forecast long term. Um, but, you know, there are some trends coming out, I think. And, and what sorts of things do you think we'll be hearing? Well, you know, I guess to be a bit self-serving, um, uh, I think we're going to see more of this kind of retail soundscape. Yeah. Side of I'm certainly more companies doing it now than were a few years ago. Um, I think we're much more. Is that part of the? Sorry to interrupt, but is that part of the? Do you think that's tied up into the whole economic cycle that's going off, of high streets closing, smaller shops closing, and bigger out-of-town experiences being built? Um, I, I don't know. I think when budgets are pushed, you know, this is the area that 
that, that, you know, it's seen as luxury. Like yeah. the music gets pushed up. Um, however, you have the advantage that when you convince uh, uh, one of the kind of the big owners, because there's not that many owners of things like shopping centres, um, then they will obviously kind of start to roll out to their other places and particularly on new builds. So the, the, the plus side is obviously the more we do it and more other people do it, the more it's seen as a, something that you have to do because your competitors have done it and it's you know, cheap to do compared to anything else. Um, and I think people are also more aware that it, it gives them, although the margins may be small, it still gives them a narrow, uh, up, up tick. And obviously anything counts. Um, uh, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know, they've, they've not lost anything. What about within the arts? So for instance, I've worked for the last two years at the Royal Shakespeare Company and one of the things the RSC did recently was work with Intel to produce some quite stunning theatre visuals using, you know, effectively augmented reality and so on. Um, what do you think of live spaces like that? Because I know you've written theatre music and sort of operettas and, uh, and things like this. Where do you think, you know, in more traditional settings like theatre, audio could go? Well, I haven't done theatre for a long time, but um, I think what you're seeing is a lot more crossing over te- technologies um, in theatre, like to a certain extent, also film. You know, it's been, it's, it sounds wrong to say this, but in some ways slow to adopt to new technology because it changes work practices. And like in film, theatre, work practice, they have works really effectively. Um, so adopting new things sometimes is difficult. Um, but I think, and partly from video games, you're seeing more of a blurring of line of the kind of technologies. For example, um, there's a lot of discussion about procedural audio, uh, which is modeling, well, it's no great definition, but I would say it's modeling sound uh, based on algorithms. So it's, so it's completely computer generated um, uh, with a high level of interactivity. So it's deeply embedded into the game or into the theater space or whatever it is. So really using modelled sound, a um, lot of discussion, not that much, not that many people doing it, but that's certainly an area that seems to be growing a lot. Um, and it's not new, you know, we were doing this, we started doing this 15 years ago, um, but now it's because of computational power um, and because it's iterative, some people start doing it, others do it more, um, but we're definitely seeing more of that. It, that's a whole separate topic, it's quite a deep one to get into. <laughs> but, Indeed uh, it is, but um, yes. do you, so do you think the future is one of more sound, but more psychologically targeted sound? Yeah, I think I think the role of uh, you know, psychoacoustics as a field is still yeah. relatively new. Um, you know, and sometimes it's just a simple stuff, like a lot of what we do has wind, water or birds in it, because right? it works, right? For those reasons why innately they are very calming for us. Well, innately we haven't evolved in the last three thousand years, particularly. Uh-huh. Some people, but yeah. You know, so what would have worked for people five thousand years ago would work now, I'm guessing. So you know, natural sounds would have an appeal for us. But also, I think um, you know, I think it was outside this topic, but but the way that we respond to sound, like like we respond to sound faster than we do the sight. Um, and obviously we're hearing all the time and we're hearing from all around us. So there's a lot of ways in which obviously sound is constantly changing how we feel and sound sounds constantly manipulating people in terms of feeling certain things uh, in different ways that we do visually. And I think 
obviously that's been used in film for decades, but bringing that over into the real world is becoming increasingly common. And yes, it's manipulative in the same way that, you know, any of the marketing technique is manipulative. Um, but I think we're definitely seeing more of that earlier. So it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's extending the concept of a soundtrack to your life, which is what people are doing when they are walking around listening to playlists. Yes. They're, they are creating a, an audio experience into which they can retreat. But we are actually saying, well, once you take the headset, headset out and you're in the real world, you're going to get another one. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah. It's created I mean, by us. Yeah. Uh, it's... I don't agree with everything that Ian has ever said, but no. uh, there's a quote he has in the book 15 years ago um, where he says, like, you know, like a parent, and a child says to its parent, oh, do you mean in your day you always used to listen to the same thing? Um, and, you know, we, we've seen over the past decade this kind of granularization of music. You know, the album is not an album anymore. Um, and the next step to that is the playlist is the album, and the computer generated playlist is the album. And so what we're doing in terms of, you know, a, a modular, granular, generative soundtrack that sits in the real world, where one stage would be quite esoteric, now is a completely acceptable thing to do. was Richard Adams speaking to Paul Ware. You can find out more about Paul Ware online. He does have a website. It's earcomaudio.com where you can find out a bit more about his work. Or otherwise, you can follow him on Twitter at earcom. That's E-A-R-C-O-M. This was the second in what we're hoping is going to be roughly a monthly show of Technique. So stay tuned for another episode coming next month. Plus, we're hoping by next month we should be able to give a bit of an announcement about some future events. You might remember that last year we ran an event at Google Campus London where we had four artists talking about their use of technology and we're trying to work on something coming up soon. So hopefully there'll be news by this time next month. So stay tuned for that. And then the other way that you can keep in touch with us is to follow us on Twitter. That's at Technique UK where we'd love to hear a little bit more about what you think about the show. If you've got any feedback, let us know. If you think there should be different types of features in here, or if you think there's someone that you want to hear from that you think we'd be good interviewing, then let us know and try and put us in touch with them. The last thank you is actually to the music for this show. It came courtesy of Quiet Music for Tiny Robots. Bit of a strange name, but hopefully you enjoyed the music. Otherwise, we'll look forward to speaking to you next month. So see you soon.
next time on Technique. It allows for people with dementia to have the opportunity to be able to enjoy these visuals and somehow be stimulated by them in some way. I interview Sonia Lee on the topic of dementia. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.